Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. This is A Time of Monsters. I'm Chris. And I'm Jason. I'm Kevin. And today we are talking about more Marxist theories of fascism. Alright, so on the last Time of Monsters episode, we talked about the common turn response to fascism and how much that differed from the early Italian responses to fascism that came from Gramsci and Togliari. And oh, we also discussed Bordiga as well, whose analysis of fascism roughly aligned with what the common turns view would be. And how the, the dominant positions taken by the KPD and the uh, Italian Communist Party, which I know is not the ICP, it's the PCI. <laughs> not the ICP. Wait, um, be pretty cool if it were. How those ended up being disastrous and resulted in the triumph of fascism and Nazism. Now, today we're going to talk about uh, a few other theories of fascism. And how the Social Democratic Party of Germany had an equally disastrous approach to combating fascism that came at the at the problem from a different angle, from the almost the opposite angle exactly. So the the book that we got most of this information from is Marxists in the Face of Fascism, uh, edited by David Beatham, that came out on Haymarket Books. It came out on Haymarket Books, and it is a, an excellent book just for the introduction alone. But it also contains within it several translations, several several essays that have translated into English for the first time in this collection. You can't find them anywhere else. We'll try to include links to some of the stuff in here, but a lot of it you won't be able to find unless you get the book. But it's definitely worth it. Yeah, the book's definitely worth it. I um, was Very pretty rough. amazed that even in like the, the Togliati stuff, which is some of the more widespread and available, that there were still essays that I had never read before. And then, of course, there's tons of stuff i just never even heard of before i was completely unfamiliar with uh like loventhal and um mm-hmm. i don't know how to say this ignacio silone you know like there there are people yeah. who have like pretty insightful stuff that seems incredibly important and relevant and we just never i at least never had heard of it it just never it was never incorporated into any uh lecture or book or talk or discussion about fascism um, that I've ever been privy to before. So one of the Marxist terms that gets thrown around a lot is the idea of Bonapartism, which isn't, isn't solely a Marxist term, but it is used by Marx to explain the dictatorship of Louis Napoleon, uh, the grandnephew or nephew? Nephew. Okay. Louis Napoleon, the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, who rose to be dictator of France after the 1848? Yeah. Uh, after after the, re- the revolutions of 1848. So um, Bonapartism becomes a, a sort of a real type in Marxist theory for describing all sorts of uh, dictatorships. And one of, one, of its, uh, one of its usages is, you know, ascribed to Stalin by Trotsky. And then again by uh, 
August Tallheimer to describe the phenomenon of fascism. And he wrote his initial treatise on fascism as a, as a type of Bonapartism, using only the Italian example, but then later altered it to, uh, or, you know, not altered it, he appended it to include how that translated to the German variety. So let's go ahead and we'll start with what, what is Bonapartism. Specifically, what Marx says Bonapartism is, is uh, rule by an executive, the bureaucracy and the military, that stands above the classes and is used to uh, pacify the proletariat and stabilize the political situation and economy in order for the perpetuation of capitalist social relations. And... By 1928, there was almost no one in any positions of political authority or influence in the Comintern or in any of the major communist parties that had any direct understanding of the Nazi threat. August Talheimer was one of the people that did understand, and he had been recently kicked out of the KPD as a purge in a purge of the the right oppositionists. All, all the Bukharan people. Uh, that was a an important note that I, I felt uh, came out of this was that any deviation from the the common turn official line that came down from uh, you know the central committee of the uh, USSR was not permissible. Uh, you're purged from the party, if not worse, uh, if you deviate from the line at all, uh, and w- which resulted in an utter inability to actually actually engage in any sort of uh, serious uh, examination or theorization of uh, of the particular material conditions of uh, wherever you're operating and what you're trying to accomplish. And uh, the editor, the author here notes that uh, Th- Talheimer and Trotsky representing um, the only advocates of revolutionary Marxism uh, who uh, able to um, or who uh, presented theories that deviated from the the, the unilateral, uh, uniform, uh, universal uh, common turn line were Talheimer and Trotsky, who were both only able to come up with their uh, n- nuanced opinions uh, about the what the nature of what fascism is from the margins, precisely because they uh, existed in the margins uh, of the movement and. In so being, in the, at the margins of the movement, were incapable of enacting it or putting in, uh, you know, sort of testing their theories out in practice by implementing it as an organizational pr- perspective of an organization that has mass a mass base of any sort. So, we talked about this last time, but how, we were talking about how the Comintern and the communist movement gained an official orthodoxy, and at the same time, it sort of just mm-hmm. stagnates and stultifies, right? It's, it keeps an effective feedback loop from getting to, the, uh, getting to the top in order to help come up with new positions. And at this time, the, the position that the German Communist Party is, uh, had adopted as their official policy was that of the Comintern's third period line. And I think we could, we need we should probably remind everybody what the third yeah. period line was. That's the period of like the the theory of offensive that like capitalism is in terminal crisis, and so that means 
uh, it's sliding naturally into fascism and thus anything less than a full-on commitment to the revolutionary overthrow of capitalism is in fact fascism. So like reformist socialists become social fascists uh, and it's the it's the where they come up with ideas like the united front from below which is where you try to link up with the masses of reformist minded workers by attacking their leaders and refusing to make alliances with the organizations but then instead just appealing to them to support yours um which is <laughs> basically the exact same thing as not yeah, doing it's that. a it's it's a theory of not uniting at all in order to make unity it's 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 bonkers you know it's a theory of hey, yeah. you should just join our organization instead. Yeah, it's like what, if only you would join us, then we yeah, would we would have, have unity. Yeah, we would have the right ideas. <laughs> if everybody just life. joined us, yeah, it's a it's a curious feature of a lot of modern left wing groups. Yeah, despite the yeah. non terminal crisis of capitalism and natural slide into fascism. But yeah, so they, yeah, well, I mean, I think we've said this on multiple occasions. Is a lot of the uh, the Marxist groups that exist these days uh, haven't developed their theories since one of the great the, the the great leader that imparted their wisdom to them died. So they just are constantly adapting reality to what was said by Trotsky right. or Mao or whatever. But anyways, they gave, they gave up on the third period and discovered uh, democratic elements within the bourgeoisie. After all, though, it turns out that they exist. And uh, and what's great about the, the way that this book is written is one of the things it points out is that it's it happens at exactly the same time as social democracy makes its sharpest lurch leftward and abandons the notion of there being any democratic element within the bourgeoisie. So right as the right as social democracy goes into defense of democracy as the task of the proletariat alone. Um and that the struggle of demo- for democracy can be is the basis for the struggle for revolution the communist party goes the other way like like this spoilers <laughs> oh did, did i jump too yeah, far you're leaping leapfrogging yeah to the end That's just the bleep all that <laughs> okay so tallheimer was a huge critic of social fascism theory and a huge critic of the ultra leftism of the uh of the KPD and it's one of the things that gets him kicked out aside from just being a bukharanist essentially right or of the bukharanist wing if bukharanism is actually a thing right so the the, the book says that Talheimer represents the first attempt to grapple with fascism as a problem of Marxist theory and to use Marx to grapple with that problem. Okay, so uh, Talheimer returns to Marx and specifically Marx talking about Bonapartism. And I highlighted something in the book here that I'm just going to go ahead and read. When referring to Bonapartism, we mentioned that the Bonapartism abolishes the rule of the bourgeoisie in order to rule in favor of the bourgeoisie's social and uh, economic interests. This here says, How is it possible for a regime which abolished bourgeois parliamentarism and dismissed the bourgeois representatives from power also to serve in the interests of bourgeois class rule? His answer be, his being Marx, 
involved showing how, in a situation of acute class conflict, a revolutionary threat from the proletariat, the bourgeoisie as a class, would tend to lose confidence in the capacity of parliamentary regime to guarantee order and the security of property, and would submit to authoritarian rule the authoritarian rule of a personal dictator, even against the wishes of its own parliamentary representatives. So in that instance, just on a, on a surface level, Talheimer's idea of fascism as Bonapartism rings true. That is essentially how the fascists gain power. The fasc- Of course, we, we've mentioned this before, that fascism has its own political base in primarily the petty bourgeoisie and contains elements of the lumpen proletariat, uh, demobilized soldiers, and the peasantry. And of course, draws in elements of the working class as well, especially right, and that's unemployed pretty well class. agreed upon, right? Right, right. across, yeah, across no, no matter what Marxist, people's, yeah. no matter what else people think, that seems to be a pretty well agreed upon feature. So the, that's the larval stage of fascism, right? Where it has its its class class base and on its lips revolutionary slogans about the working class when it really means the petty bourgeoisie, um, and talks about how the big banks need to be smashed um this, like in the nazis specifically talked about destroying the the uh the department stores and you know decentralizing decentralizing the shops again back to the the you know the small shopholders and stuff like that and fighting on behalf of the working class so they they've got their the working class and the small properteer so they've got their their class interests enshrined in their political platform but how they get into power is through backdoor deals with big business and the representatives of the bourgeoisie. But they use their party line uh, to develop a mass base, which a mass that mass base is the distinctive feature that Talheimer notes. It, it makes it uh, unique as a form of what or what he calls as a form of Bonapartism. But it is a, it's a distinction from what Marx was describing as Bonapartism. Right. So... Um... Talheimer refers to to fascism as a type of Bonapartism in spite of that in spite of that characteristic. And we'll get to this in a little bit, but Trotsky says that fascism is not true Bonapartism because of that characteristic. And essentially, Talheimer and Trotsky agree in uh, content, but the form is a little bit different. Right. So one of the things that Talheimer says is key to understanding the uh the paradox of the rule of fascism is the uh differentiation between social power and political rule and like i mentioned earlier to preserve social power the bourgeoisie allowed political power to be broken so to quote marx in order to save the purse it had to forfeit the crown and um there are distinct parallels between mussolini and uh louis bonaparte and his movement the first of all being the uh, automization of executive power, right? The collective, the collecting of exe- executive power that is wielded through the bureaucracy and the military. And the fascist party paralleled the December bans of Bonaparte and its methods and its militant nationalism and the role that the December bans played in the elevation of the hero in, uh, in the coup d'etat. And, a key component, a very important component, being the defeated onslaught of the proletarian, of the proletariat, and the exhaustion of the bourgeoisie, 
leading to the demoralization of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie casting about for a savior. That's good writing. In all of those, in all of those parallels, it, it seems like a pretty, it seems like an apt comparison. Yeah, it rings true to me. At least in those, with those particular things in mind, it's a pretty apt comparison. But I also think that Bonapartism is just like not a super concrete, like descriptive term. Like I, I get that it, it, it serves a function, which is just to try to describe the, the, the phenomenon of a, what I guess what military leadership trying to stand above the various classes. Well, it, it's useful at the time because it, it helps to differentiate the, the, the nature of fascism from the other authoritarian governments, authoritarianisms that exist in Europe at the time. Specifically, he's trying to make a sharp distinction between the Brunig and von Papen governments in Germany and, you know, fascism in Italy or fascism in Germany. Because the Brunig and von Papen governments are being called lower levels of fascism or, fascisti- or fascistizing um, regimes by the KPD. And, you know, the KPD is saying, look, this is just another form of fascism. Uh, Hitler will be no worse than von Papen and Brunig, right, before Hitler gains power. So Talheimer is saying, no, this is different. It's worse because parliamentarism would be cast aside. And even that weak representation of the working class would be gone. And it would it would be direct rule by the military and the uh, the autocrat. It would be what would be called the open but indirect dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, right? Yeah, right. Well, and I mean, I guess the whole previous installment of Time of Monsters was about the dangerous delusion that is we're already living under fascism. Yeah, so how could and, Hitler or Mussolini be worse? Right. Um, well, I, I think we also made some jokes or references to the fact that that's a that's a, how a lot of people on the American left talk about the present situation in the United States, which is just like presuming that that was actually a danger. Like, I couldn't think of a more disarming thing than to tell people, oh, we're basically in fascism already. It's like, oh, this is not, not all that bad and not all that different, right? Which is the other point. The other half of that thinking is like, it's fundamentally not different from bourgeois democracy in peaceful times, which is obviously absurd. One of the things that Talheimer says is that developments in capitalism and workers' movements required a greater mechanism of suppression, which is where the uh, the added features of fascism come from that make it different than traditional Bonapartism. So fascism had a mass appeal. Bonapartism didn't. That seems like a good point to, um, to insert that... Um that this was the distinction that Trotsky made between his way of uh, analyzing it and what Talheimer was uh, arguing for. So Talheimer was um, calling the Comintern ultra-leftist and uh, was trying to found a right communist grouping, self-conceived right communist grouping in Germany. Uh, you know, it didn't have much of a following at all, but uh, but this was his sort of theoretical... Uh, attempt at at founding that like the party line or whatever around that um trotsky's analysis of fascism ended up lining up very closely with Alzheimer's, but uh instead of calling the common trend ultra leftist he considered them um centrist zigzagging 
Um, right. And uh, and his major uh, his main disagreement that he had with Thalheimer was uh, basically was not actually about the the way he analyzed fascism, but rather the way that he understood Bonapartism, and he instead said that. Um, uh, the uh, he agreed um, with Talheimer that Popper and uh, von Poppen was the yeah von von the, thank you uh, von Poppen and uh, and uh, whoever that came before Brunig. Uh, Hitler Bruning yeah that's right um, um, the two of them were distinct from uh, from what the 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 formation of what Hitler was but they actually represented Bonapartism and then fascism, uh, which Hitler and the Nazis represented was something separate, different, unique, uh, and precisely in, in, uh, the character of its mass base. Right. The, uh, the character of its mass base, the, what he called a terrorist mass movement. Mm-hmm. Trotsky referred to von Papen and Brunig as Bonapartist and Hitler as something different. Uh, Talheimer was saying that the, and I think Trotsky and Talheimer agreed here, that the regimes of Brunig and von Papen were setting the precedent for fascism by uh, attacking the workers with the bayonet. But what fascism was is when the bayonet becomes independent and turns its point on the politicians as well, on the parliamentary politicians as well. So the specific things that separate fascism from Bonapartism that Trotsky emphasizes are the terrorist mass movement, the co-opting of red aesthetic for appeal to, you know, potential revolutionaries. Trotsky differentiated between types of Bonapartisms. He, he had two different types. The first being preventative Bonapartism. And that was like you mentioned, the Brunig and von Poppen governments. Dictatorship sits above class rivalries. And when class conflict, when class conflict could not be uh, contained... And it proceeds along. It proceeds along a program that uh, allows for the for the snowballing into fascism by um, attempting to mitigate the threat of fascism through reactionary parliamentary procedures, right, or pushing through executive decrees. So, the von Popping and Brüning governments were chipping away at the social safety net and the rights of the working class and bourgeois democratic rights in order to appease the reactionary right and lessen the appeal of fascism. And we'll get to this, but the social Democrats Mm -hmm. generally went along with this in order to appease the reactionary right and to keep from giving the Nazis any fuel to their electoral fires. Right. And, um, that is what Trotsky referred to as preventive, preventative Bonapartism. You can see why there would be a desire to paint these people as a kind of quasi-crypto-fascist themselves. Right. Even if it doesn't make sense. You see, you can understand it at a, at a libidinal level or whatever. Well, I mean... At a, at, at a knee-jerk psychological level. Right. And I see that, but like it requires a misunderstanding of the real threat of fascism to do that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Which I think that it's quite clear existed at the time. And then the second type of Bonapartism, he says, is Bonapartism of fascist origin, which is fascism in power, not fascism as a movement. Fascism in power um, suppresses the workers' organizations and provides social stability 
and abandons the political goals of the petty bourgeoisie. And by doing that, it divorces its itself from its base and then just becomes rule by the dictator through the bureaucracy and the military, divorced of its class base. And Trotsky said that it would be impossible for that regime to have any sort of stability because divorced from its mass base, it would have, have insufficient power for keeping the proletariat in chains. Well, that didn't turn out to be how it went, though. No, um, because in, in both instances, both in um, Italy and in Germany, after the, the Nazi party and the fascist party sort of purged themselves of their more radical anti-capitalist, nominally anti-capitalist and, you know, anti-big business elements. Like after the Night of the Long Knives, when the, the leadership of the SA and the Strasserite elements of the Nazi party were purged, the, the base, the petty bourgeoisie, just continued to go along with and support Hitler. It says that Trotsky didn't count on the threat of the the manufactured threat of the Jews being the the social glue that it was in Germany. Yeah, he definitely underestimated it, and that was a big fuck up. I I think a lot of the I think I think it's actually really um, true of a lot of these sorts of um, Marxist uh, attempts at analyzing society that engage in this like sort of. Uh, you know, scientific objectivism or whatever that refuses to engage with the the more uh, culturally specific and uh, individually psychological levels of uh, uh, social and political movements. Uh, they miss this. Uh, they miss this kind of stuff that is uh, incredibly important. Um, you know, as we can see, as how things played out in history. I think. Um, that you know, there has to be a sort of we have you have to supplement um, pure sort of uh, objectivist analyses of uh, uh, of society with all you know the rest of what it means to be human, which is inherently subjective and internal, psychological, particular, cultural. This is another one of those situations where I think you can really um, you can see you can be sympathetic. I think because like something like anti-Semitism as mass politics is just kind of inconceivable despite the long standing existence of anti-Semitism in a, in a broader and more general way in Europe, the idea that it could be used as like the foundation of a movement, um, even stripped bare of any of the rest of its content that seems to, um, meet a material need or a psychological need, right? Like if fascism as a movement is about like restoring masculinity to defeated soldiery and restoring national pride to a defeated country and so on, right? Um, that it's a movement of the small shopkeeper and the the pauperized masses against finance capital. And then in power, it, it does nothing to alleviate any of the burdens or alienations that, um, that people feel. It's... It's understandable to not assume that anti-Semitism would be enough to kind of keep that mass popular support uh, in place because it's so ethereal. And so because it had never provided that kind of sense of cohesion for people before. Um, It is a pretty bizarre and unique new feature of 20th century fascism. 
or at least in Germany. I think well, it certainly it sure as fuck uh, yeah. threatened um, uh, itself with um, you know the counter revolutionary forces of the whites in uh, in Russia. You know, like tr- trying to restore national pride and and uh, restore the the czar uh, and uh, with vicious, violent, militant anti-Semitism sort of uh, sort of lurking around within it. I, I, you know, that existed in the whites. And if had they beat uh, the Bolsheviks, had they defeated the Bolsheviks, like uh, the United States and you know thirteen other countries tried to ensure happened. Uh, you know, the term for fascism would would be, uh, uh, you know, Russian instead of Italian. But that it it existed. It's very much so existed there. Uh, it didn't come to fruition, but right. Um, the other thing that the other element for that sort of stabilization um, was the the post Versailles nationalism that existed in Germany. That was an incredibly strong pull, uh, even on the left, uh, as we talked about when we talked about national Bolshevism. But yeah, the, the, the pains of Versailles were an animating feature to this, to the, to the, to the Nazi movement, avenging, avenging the stab in the back. And those are, that's, that's sort of tied together with the anti-Semitism because you know, the Nazis painted the picture of the Jews and the Social Democrats and the communists as all having played a part in the stab in the back that caused Germany to lose the war and put them under the thumb of the Allied power, the Entente powers or whatever. But yeah, so we see here that both Trotsky and Talheimer agree that the ground was prepared for fascism by the anti-parliamentary authoritarianisms of Brunig and von Papen, both opposed the social fascism theory and both agreed with the need for a united front strategy and the need for uh, action, extra-parliamentary action to save the Republic from fascism, um, and which they both hoped would grow over into proletarian revolution. Um, and at the same time, they, they both agreed on this, but at the same time, Trotsky was 100% against the idea of working of with Talheimer <laughs> because he, ju- he, he judged Talheimer as, quote, being uh, worse than a corpse because of his defense of Stalin's um, – Talheimer, T- Talheimer thought that Stalin's wisdom was perfectly sufficient for what was going on in the Soviet Union and was okay with that, but that Stalin's – uh, insight into what was going on in Germany was insufficient and he disagreed with him on it. So he split from Stalin only on what was going on in Germany. And because of that, Trotsky was completely unwilling to God. work with him. And I don't, I don't know if Talheimer was unwilling to work with Trotsky or not, but yeah, it's an age old story that we, I don't know. I like, what do you say? Like, what's the, what's the road out of, out of this? Because it, it definitely exists still today. This kind of, um, narcissism of small differences and sectarianism in that 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 is 
exactly like self-defeating that it that is absolutely self-defeating in the stated explicit conscious goals of individual leftists and left groups um uh, needing to uh you know eschew uh, some other group individual or grouping because they're not uh you know they don't hold the right line on this that or the other thing so we can't have anything to do with them that exists everywhere and i and it's uh maybe it's not you know uh just like the opposite of that maybe isn't the answer but um uh this sure as hell is a problem you know like and i don't know what to do about that well it's 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 a little bit curious too because you know prior to all of the the internal conflicts in the russian party in the 1920s like the people the right opposition people were just the uh, another wing of world communism right so there's the bukharan people on the one side and the trotsky people on the other side and the idea that you couldn't work with each other is sort of um pretty well refuted in the actual experience of uh the only successful revolution up to that point right and then it so it plays out in these really tragic ways like in spain you know the inability to unite the dissident wings of communism against uh, the soviet union's hegemony and then the same thing in germany with the inability to unite dissident wings of communism against against fascism um and it really just shows like this profound like weakness built right into the genetic code of trotskyism that goes all the way back uh despite whatever else is right and you know like correct and accurate about like what comes out of the left opposition this this is like a fundamental weakness that is really just gets more and more farcical as it goes but it's super tragic in the face of you know the nazis okay so the last thing i have in this part is just that uh the third period basically blurred the distinction between fascism and uh, authoritarian regimes and lessened the importance of dealing with fascism as a distinct category and that there was and I think I mentioned this briefly a sort of cycle of parliamentary parliamentary action laying the groundwork for fascism by lessening the rights uh, lessening the people's democratic rights and chipping away at the welfare state. Hey everybody, Chris here. Just wanted to remind you guys of a couple of things. First of all, we have a Patreon. And if you like listening to us and think we deserve $2 a month of your hard-earned money, please go and sign up. Right now, our patrons get access to irregularly posted content that includes special episodes, where we do deep dives into stuff that might be too nerdy for our main feed, extra content from episodes that go way longer than we expected, and impromptu discussions of events and articles that we think are worth a bit of attention. The second thing I wanted to remind everyone of is that we are now part of the Lost Horizons Network which is a dialectical pessimist podcasting network that includes us, The Regrettable Century, Red Library, and From 78. 
You can listen to us, Red Library and From78, using your favorite podcatching app, or find us by searching our respective names on Twitter and Facebook. We also have a special Lost Horizons Network collaboration podcast, which is a roundtable discussion including members of all three podcasts. Our network website can be found at LostHorizonsNetwork.com, which will be linked in the show notes. Our roundtable discussions will be available to listen on your favorite podcatching app, and also look out for us on social media. Just search for The Lost Horizons Network. And as always, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews help trick the algorithm into thinking that we are important and have something interesting to say. All right, back to the show. Sock Dems. Let's talk about them Sock Dems. They did some dumb shit, too. Uh, they did. I'd Turns say out. that the communists and the social democrats of Germany were united in doing dumb <laughs> shit that let the fascists win. <laughs> but, of course, they were united in isolation from one another and without any kind of communication between the right. two. In, in fact, open hostility and antagonism. Right. So the first and that's thing... despite having tried to make a united front from below. <laughs> oh, <shit>. <laughs> the <laughs> first thing to understand about uh, the social democratic approach to dealing with fascism would be what the rationale behind the behavior of the of social democracy at the time was, and that would be the idea of organized capitalism. Right. Oh yeah, I found that super interesting. Hilferding, right? Who um, who most explicitly sort of theorized and, and laid that out, right? As a, a this is the, the it was sort of like this is a, a, a central analysis of the world and how it functions of capitalism and how it functions that is distinct from revolutionary communism, revolutionary Marxism. That uh, that is the sort of scaffolding of reformism as a uh, an approach to Marxism. So it's it's interesting for two reasons to me because on the one hand like it it does show more of a materialist an- basis for reformist politics in that it identifies like the a seeming trend toward monopolization and, and statification of capital um so that you see like a a, a rationale behind the explicitly gradualist and reformist approach to social transformation. But it's also the same material underpinnings of Lenin's thinking, which he mostly gets from Hilferding, you know, when he writes his uh, imperialism as the highest, uh, latest stage of capitalism. But they draw opposite conclusions, um, not so much about the tendencies in capitalist society, which they agree on, but they draw opposite conclusions when it comes to political strategy despite really having pretty not exactly identical but very similar assessments of the terrain which really just shows i guess like how strong ideology is as a factor that you could have like the same map and still draw different routes i i think well hmm, that's an interesting way of putting it because the way sort of thinking of this as we read the the text was uh see well 
the way I was thinking of it is that they were opposites, uh, that they saw a different world around them, that they assessed a different world around them. But now that I'm, I don't know, I'm trying to think, th- uh, apply the way that you're describing it as saying that they're looking at and understanding the same world, but they see a different sort of uh, potential, different potentialities arising out of it uh, as the world progresses and moves forward. So I guess yeah. we should explain to everybody what organized capitalism actually is. So. The idea of organized capitalism emphasized rational planning within monopolies in this, the phase of capitalism known as monopoly capitalism, which retained the capacity for technical innovation without the immediate pressures of the market that a quote-unquote socialist planning had allowed capitalism to regenerate and stabilize and to... Uh, expand the state's intervention into the economy enough to keep crisis from recurring. And this is the the crux of their misunderstanding of fascism is they conceived of the state as a neutral, uh, a neutral body and state intervention was not conceived of as political and not, it wasn't conceived of as an instrument of capital, but it is an instrument of society. Right, exactly. Yeah, so um, I, I read um, Hilferding as arguing in uh, sort of the explicit opposite of the, the revolutionary theory of um, uh, monopoly capitalism, where the revolutionaries saw monopoly capitalism as a, a stagnation of capitalism as uh, you uh, aggregate power into smaller, smaller, uh, and smaller pool of individual capitalists uh, who sort of goes off from the rest of society and move away from um, uh, the idealized form of capitalism in small market uh, open competition with small, you know, low barrier to entry or whatever. You get the stagnation of capitalism. That stagnation of capitalism lead uh, leads to uh, the um, Less, less. Uh, you don't get uh, technological development out of these monopolies uh, the way that you would uh, in an open sort of you know high competition market. You don't get uh, uh, and uh, and you and it lends itself toward uh, economic crises that are unable to be solved. Whereas the Hilferding talked about uh, monopoly capitalism is actually being organized capitalism, where. Um, he saw the exact uh, saw and described the exact opposite that uh, he pointed to how inside of these monopoly firms you have rational planned uh, uh, the, the kernels of rational planned economies that we want to have under socialism. Uh, he saw he uh, emphasized the technological development that did exist with with even these monopoly capitalism and noted how. Um, uh, lends itself to the yeah, like you were saying, Chris, to the uh, flourishing of social democracy, uh, social welfare reform, uh, the economy, and so they what they argued was rather than monopoly capitalism being a thing that is stagnating progress, it's actually elevating progress. It continues to be a progressive form of capitalism. So they said instead of standing in opposition to this, we need to embrace this progressive element in society and seek to extend it so we can move the rational planning and technological development that we see in large monopoly firms to society as a whole. They also saw, uh, and they also saw the state not as a representative of a single class, but rather they're a re- the neutral arbiter of 
uh, social antagonisms that exist within society between between the different classes, um, which is a break from Marxism. Exactly, and they um, that is a, a break from the Marxist theory of a the fundamental state, break yeah. from Marxism. And so their theory then, or Hilferding's theory then of fascism was rather than it being um, something that we we have to sort of like stop everything we're doing and and uh, address this threat. It's rather this is an aberration and this is not a sort of natural conclusion where society is heading right now. This is a, um, a, a voluntarist uh, attempt at interrupting what it would is natural, the natural progression of society. Uh, and he that re- was he, Kautsky. That was Kautsky. It said that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. OK, you're right. Uh, well, he saw that. Um, well, anyway, I wrote down that he uh, he said that it, that that it was an aberration. Then it was Kautsky who who talked about how political violence is uh, a historical deviation that revolutionaries uh, engage in a futile attempt to force the pace of history, whereas fascists engage in a futile attempt to force history backwards. And either in any either case, right. it's a voluntarist, futile attempt to try to deviate from the necessity of history. That is a, a sort of illustrative of his uh the brain rot that seeps in (laughs) um as a result of the comfortable position of social democracy in the weimar republic and the um a result of him getting called renegade by lenin (laughs) (laughs) well he was uh being a renegade sounds a lot cooler than what actually happened to kautsky in his dotage um i referred to this era of kautskyism as derelict kautskyism (laughs) wait Explain derelict Kautskyism. Derelict Kautskyism. It's the uh, derelict meaning like, you know, decomposing from neglect. Um, and that's the removal of the, the Social Democratic Party from from its representation of the working class and the working class interests. And it's sort of enshrining within the halls of power and solidification as a parliamentary body rather than a, you know, a Marxist party that represents the class as a whole becomes a derelict structure right uh so right yeah derelict kautskyism this is just because there is a good there's good kautskyism and then there's derelict kautskyism yeah (laughs) earlier kautsky was was uh, a lot better than this for sure earlier kautsky was great in fact lenin was a kautskyist he was at the time yeah Yeah. until kautsky turned renegade okay let's see so um yeah that brings us up through kautsky i think um so the result of uh, of you know Hilfert and Kautsky, the reformists, the uh, explicit self-conceived reformists, I I think it's important to emphasize the self-conceived portion of this because it's so uh, such a problem. I think anyway uh, uh, of leftists today will love to run around and try to smear each other at, with terms that they've labeled other people with that people you know the the other party or whatever don't regard themselves as this that or the other thing and that's that's frustrating and not helpful i don't think but anyway uh the the self-conceived reformists uh consequent uh, or the consequential uh consequentially the strategy that they used to address fascism grew out of their theory of uh capitalism socialism uh, historical necessity and the nature of the state um, to uh, uh, to uh, detach themselves and refuse to make any alliances with 
um, revolutionaries uh, sections of uh, wor- the working class movement. So they eschewed uh, uh, any alliances with the communists and uh, instead explicitly sought to ally themselves with the more progressive elements of the capitalist class uh, in Germany in defense of parliament. And then also, uh, as fascism continued to rise as a social threat, uh, they saw it as a feudal aberration. Therefore, the best thing to do is to simply wait it out and uh, let the fascists prove their own incompetence. Wait for the economy to get better and for the social base of fascism to dry up. Right, because crisis wasn't possible a consequence of you know um uh individual actors fucking things up and so you know we need to just get back on wait wait until things get back on track and i mentioned this briefly earlier they uh hilferding opposed determined struggle against the dismantling of the welfare state so as not to alarm the bourgeois parliamentary center where his potential allies against nazism were so the Social Democratic Party of Germany went along with the the Brunig government's slashing of became a party of austerity essentially in order to not alarm their centrist right, allies. Exactly. Yeah, they don't want to antagonize capital, which could which they thought could drive them uh, to embrace the the fascists in order to crush the the rabble rousing you know workers movement. Uh, that's causing the problems. Uh, so they they sought to be the ones who were quelling the rabble rousing, uh, uh, cut themselves off from any um, uh, uh, anything that would antagonize their capital capitalist allies, um, and uh, they continued to make uh, compromises and tolerate lesser evilism as a as a you know an explicit approach right. to how to handle fascism. So they. They tolerated the Brunig government as a lesser evil and the von Papen government as a lesser evil. And it was the von Papen government that actually yanked Hitler out of his uh, political defeat from the, the 1933 elections. Because the, the, the popularity of the Nazis was declining steadily. And there were a succession of different votes and the Nazis were losing votes in every election. So Hilferding at the time assumed that his strategy was working and the Nazis were being pushed into obscurity. And then von Papen cuts a deal with Hitler, making Hitler chancellor. And the Nazis rush into power. So Hilferding gives a speech in January of 1933, arguing that his strategy had been successful. And then in April of 1933, the Nazis come to power. And by June, the the Socialist Party and the Communist Party are outlawed. And uh, whoops, <laughs> and um, getting shot side by side together in Dachau. But um, the socialist, the SDP's executive committee was exiled to Prague, where it comes up with a pretty interesting document. Hilferding comes up with this document. He's the the author of the document called the Prague Manifesto, where they rejected the Kautskyan view that. The goal of opposition to fascism should be the restoration of the republic so that a peaceful democratic socialist transition could continue on its linear trajectory, which I just wanted to mention earlier that it's just the reverse form of vulgar materialism here. (laughs) Vulgar historical materialism. And in the Prague Manifesto, he writes that fascism and capitalism 
should be fought against simultaneously and that a transitional republic should be uh, established that would expropriate expropriate industry finance and the large estates um, disenfranchise the bourgeoisie and the and decimate the financial base and social power of the reaction and then reestablish the constituent assembly so hilferding goes from his managed capitalism and eventual peaceful transition to socialism to calling for the dictatorship of the proletariat and admitting that 1918 and 1919 was a failure and an incomplete revolution, which, you know, it's good that Hilferding was able to learn from yeah. his mistakes. More of us uh, on the left should um, should be like that. And that's what Jason was referring to earlier, is that, like, the this is the turn that the um, the Social Democratic Party takes, the, the Socialist Party of Germany takes, that passes up the Communist Party of Germany as it's lurching to the right, the Socialist Party of Germany is lurching to the left and they pass each other. And the Communist Party adopts the Popular Front strategy and the Socialist Party adopts for calls adopts calls for proletarian dictatorship. <laughs> One of the things that's interesting about that that moment is it does sort of help make the case for what is called the French turn, where all the small Trotskyist groups went into the social democratic mass parties. Um on the presumption that a moment of crisis would swing the official reformist socialist movement left, because it does appear to have happened, at least in some cases, especially in Austria. And yet they still had no influence over it. Um, so there was uh, within the SPD, there uh, the reformists. Um, they there there was a left wing of the reformists who were critical of Kautsky and Hilferding's uh, positions on things. Uh, Sadowitz, I have uh, in a note that he was a representative of this uh, uh, this wing. Um, they were critical uh, uh, that the approach of specifically of the the approach of sort of con making concessions alliances with the progressive capitalists at all uh, costs uh, and engaging in um, just lesser evilism at all costs um, uh, doing this only allowed the capitalists to use the fascist threat to roll back working class gains uh, without having to accept fascists into government or into positions of power um Unfortunately, though, the left wing of the social of the SPD didn't offer any alternatives. They they were sort of like stumped with what what do we do? But they were just critical of the approach that uh, the right wing was was taking. Um, th there were uh, uh, Sadowitz uh, apparently raised questions about maybe this is an inherent flaw in social democracy, uh, the social democratic approach. Um, of engaging right. in an, an everyday uh, lived experience, uh, uh, you know, the ideology that is produced by um, uh, the, the practice of living, uh, which uh, the Social Democrats were engaging in an approach of compromising and negotiating with reactionary forces in the state and throughout society uh, by engaging in that uh you know, everyday practice that gives rise inherently to the ideology of uh, lesser evilism of, of engaging in, you know, well, this is the best that we can get right now. So let's just keep fighting for more, you know, um, 
uh, once we have that lesser evil in place. Um, it's a really cool idea. It works uh, really well. But yeah, and then they they broke yeah. a, right. They broke <laughs> away and formed the SAP. Uh, that was uh, took like an identical position to Talheimer's uh, right communist f- formation, uh, but the SAP was also isolated and, and impotent. If only they were friends. And it's too bad that the SDP adopts the Prague Manifesto in Prague instead of in Berlin. Wait, what? Wait, yeah, ex- uh, <laughs> expand on that. Like after they had been exiled to Prague. Instead of when they were in power oh, right. in Berlin. Oh, right. Like, it's a, it's too late of a gesture at that point. Yeah. Okay, that didn't land. Okay, so um, let's talk about the Social Democratic Workers' Party of Austria. SDAP. SDAP. Which, unlike the sort of Kautskyist and later SDP, saw the Bolsheviks as the correct model for the USSR, if not Austria, and took a much more militant social democratic stand uh, when they wrote the Linz program, the Linz program in 1926, which envisioned envisaged armed resistance by the bourgeoisie if the SDAP had electoral success and said that there needed to be preparation for open armed conflict in order to secure the advance, the parliamentary advances of the Austrian social democratic workers party. Uh, That is a key difference from the, you know, S the SDP, which had an openly, anti-violence and pro-monopoly capitalism in, a, in essence a political program so in Austria we have competing strands of fascism uh, we have the clerical fascist Heimwehr and the Nazis and in 1933 Engelbert Dolfus it's this most German name that there is <laughs> leads a coup uh, ostensibly to suppress Nazism and brings his Christian social party into power and begins by of course attacking workers rights and the welfare state just like the Brunig and von Poppen regimes in Germany did and of course, as soon as he gets done quelling the uh, National Socialist uprisings, okay, oh, so this is happening. There is a, a violent National Socialist terrorist campaign that's going on in Austria at the time, um, and these national so the the Nazis in Austria are calling for um, what is what's known as Anschluss with um, with Germany, the reunification of Germany with Austria. Reunification, right? Unification of Germany with Austria. So, um, Dolfus ceases power to stabilize conditions and creates a sort of, you know, semi-authoritarian or authoritarian semi-parliamentary regime to stabilize the country. And immediately after quelling the Nazi problem in Austria, 
turns on the Social Democratic Party and uh, deputizes the Heimwehr as auxiliary policemen. So there was, it was a sort of pre-fascist kind of situation happening here. The fascists, the clerical fascists of the Heimwehr didn't have direct control, but were being utilized by an authoritarian regime as an arm of the state. So they had a pretty significant amount of influence here. So that's why uh, the Dolphus regime gets referred to as Austro-fascist. I think it's just because people like tacking on Austro in front of things like Austro-Marxism, Austro-fascism. I was always under the impression that the Austro-fascist period before the Nazi, before the Anschluss, that they they did regard themselves as fascists. Is that not the case? Much like the, like Spain wasn't a purely fascist regime. It was a coalition that comes to power with a large fascistic element right okay yeah i mean that's one of the things that comes up in these debates about the class character or the the social nature of fascism all the way across the board is the 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 question that always you always return to when you're discussing any particular features like yeah but what about spain because it kind of always fits most but not all of them and i guess that's why this is such an important thing to study. Right. Yeah. Like with Spain, the um, the phalangists were a fascist group and they ally with the Carlists and the other right reactionaries and create a government with uh, Franco at the head, which restores the monarchy. And Franco rules as, you know, the essentially the dictator on behalf of the monarch. Right. But immediately breaks from fascism and goes on a defascistization process that intensifies greatly after World War II to the point where there's nothing fascist about Spain. It is just a right-wing authoritarian Catholic dictatorship. Uh, Very much so capitalist in every aspect. No, no concessions to the, the, uh, the, corporatist program after its initial defascistization well there's not much in the language of the franco period either in the propaganda of the of the revolt against the republic you know it's you know the spanish nation and like god and country but it's not like the way that the nazis and the italian fascists talk about the rule of finance capital against the working peoples or whatever yeah right right yeah 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 okay so so the SDA, the SDAP in Austria, in order to avoid what it called a black and brown alliance, which would have been an alliance between the Nazis and the, uh, the clerical fascists, uh, decides against a general strike to oppose the attacks on the Social Democratic Party by the uh, Dolphus government. And in spite of their efforts to to appease the fascists um, there's an uprising in Linz in 1934 and by this point the the party is has been too weakened by attacks attacks from the uh, the Dolphus government and through compromises it's lost a lot of legitimacy and is unable to do anything about the and do anything to help the uprising and the uprising is crushed 
Whoops. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, exact same as the SPD. They um, had such a commitment to legalism and keeping the peace that they made concessions for fear that destabilization would make room for uh, the you know the black and brown variation variants to consolidate and take over and instead actually just themselves made room for the, the fascisms to consolidate and take over so eventually the nazis assassinate dolphus and one of his ministers kurt von schischnig takes control of the austrian government and just like the von poppen regime in germany hands over power to hitler the Schuschnigg government in Austria hands power to Hitler in spite of all the best efforts of both of the social democratic parties to appease them. So this is where I have Bauer coming in. Um, We have Otto Otto Bauer. Bauer. Um, so Otto Bauer is a member of the Austrian Social Democratic Party, the SDAP, um, uh, and he starts. You know, he's looking at the the consequences of this. He's he's uh, reviewing, uh, looking back at the different approaches that that uh, leftists had taken in different uh, countries in the face uh, of the rising power of fascism, um, and he's looking. He's what he identifies, what he sees, and I think he's. This is really interesting and probably some some uh, good truth in this, where he sees uh, there was a, a, a left-wing approach in Italy and uh, the socialists lost and the fascists won. There was a right-wing approach right. in Germany and the socialists lost and the fascists won. And there was a centrist approach in Austria and the socialists lost and the fascists won. And he he concludes from this that, uh, that it's... Uh, it's Therefore, it must be that it's not as simple uh, is not as simple as a tactical mistake uh, by one or the other um, socialist parties doing you know taking the wrong tactical approach in the face of fascism, but rather it's the problem uh, cuts a lot deeper than that. Um, and he's he's seeing like right, he, he's he, seeing that there the interests in. Um, in society uh, as they exist are too internally fractured that the system just inherently tends toward breaking apart and uh, giving rise to Bonapartism. Yeah. He says we have to look at the objective conditions that lead to these circumstances. Capitalism has a need to smash social democracy and the workers' movements. The peasants and the petty bourgeoisie have turned against democracy and the uh, dynamics of crisis are trending towards dictatorship worldwide. So he doesn't see fascism as an right. inevitable result, but he just sees that the maneuverings of social democracy are insufficient to deal with it. There's no tack a social democratic party could have taken that would uh, sufficiently oppose fascism. And he ends up later coming up with a pretty cool idea. Uh, I have some, um, uh, some notes about Lowenthal before it goes back to Bauer. Lowenthal, uh, yeah. About the, other, the next yeah, yeah. conclusion. Uh, so Lowenthal is another Austrian kind of Bau. Um, uh, I think he's agreeing uh, on his assessment. And he's, he's sort of trying yeah, to propose is. a solution, but he doesn't really 
have much meat on it or as to like how would this work how would we accomplish this you know uh but he's saying that the only solution to this deeper crisis is to have all oppositional forces uh, all forces opposed to fascism to be unified behind a proletarian class struggle for a socialist solution to economic crisis um no and he's notes that no one was able to do this uh, and no one uh, presently knows how to do this, but this is the only solution. It's, it's deeper than uh, one or the other tack. Right. The the Bauer and Lo- uh, Loventhal positions are mm. presented as like the same position. Um, so they, they represent like a, a locus of thought in the Austrian Social Democratic Workers' Party. Um, and then, that yeah, like like you said, Lowenthal doesn't provide us with a roadmap or tell us how he thinks that should happen and just that it should happen. And I agree. Yeah, me That's too. That's what should have happened. Yeah. That would have been nice. And I also agree with Lowenthal. I, I don't know how you get that. <laughs> yes. It's one of the, it's one of the things that I share with Lowenthal. So back to Bauer now, and this is probably the best thing that I, I read out of all of this and the most interesting thing i read out of all of this anyway is uh bauer defend says that the defense of parliamentary democracy could only effectively have been done by extra parliamentary defense by staging an extra parliamentary defense through the workers movement right through general strikes through uh military means if necessary and that he thought that the that that defense should break out into a proletarian struggle to establish a workers' state. So in that instance, he lines up with Trotsky and Talheimer. Where he's different and more interesting is that he thought that social democracy was the proper form for a certain stage of capitalism, and that form and and that stage of capitalism evaporates in the face of fascism, right? So that there needs to be a new form of socialism to combat the era of fascism. And this is where he argues for the unification of communist and social democratic methods. So that social democracy should exist in times of relative peace to organize the workers movement, to build the the organs of class power and then in the face of a reaction should wield those organs of class power to smash capitalism and establish proletarian dictatorship. Yeah. I really, I, the, I, this is so fascinating uh, that it's uh, such an obscure figure that I don't think I've ever heard of this approach before. I've never heard of this individual before reading uh, this text. Um, And uh, I, it's such an impressive and simple uh, answer to the problem, basically saying we should be reformists during periods of stability and we should be revolutionaries during periods of crisis, essentially. Uh, and um, uh, that makes a hell of a lot of fucking sense. Um, and one one note uh, about so he proposes the solution, but he doesn't yet again. Like, so how do you do that? How do you get everybody unified around, you know, uh, recognizing that? These are actually strategic approaches and not base principles uh, as to whether we engage in parliamentarism or not, right? Um, um, and 
<clears throat> it's notable that uh, this, y- y- the fact that Bauer was a reformist and did, never raised this sort of uh, uh, perspective until ousted by the rise of fascism and put uh, driven into exile, right? Um, it that that fact lends credence to the idea that it's the nature of engaging in social democratic practice during those periods of stability that gives rise to the ideology of ref, uh, of the commitment to reformism because it wasn't until being driven into exile and no longer engaging in the uh, day-to-day negotiation and compromise with forces of reaction that he's then putting forward uh, uh, you know where he's 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 suddenly sharply moving to the left uh, and putting forward idea the, the idea is that you know revolutionary praxis actually is how uh, you know, we we solve this problem and move society forward. Yeah, do you think that there's an argument to be made there that, like, uh, existence precedes essence? Hmm. Or, I don't know, that, like, material circumstances de- determine what it is that people think? <laughs> what? Yeah, you know, just... Just, I'm just, crazy. Brain, just brainstorming here, you know. I, th- I think that. Well, I think that's true, right? I mean, I think I, I, it's it's of course it's true, uh, even. <laughs> um, but it's yeah. it poses the problem uh, that sort of undermines his his idea, right? His theory of well, we should do this in this stage and this in the other stage is undermined by the reality of the fact of reformist ideology taking root um undermining uh this better and more accurate sort of uh more useful marxist theorization because of the nature of engaging in um in parliamentarism during the periods of stability right it happens to be the case that the majority of social democratic leaders don't adopt this thinking even as their circumstances change so all we're really seeing here is Bauer adopting the same strategy that the younger Kautsky called for and that Lenin called for. You know, I mean, the Bolsheviks were a parliamentary party as well until the revolution happened and until it was either seize power or risk losing all the potential gains of the February revolution. Well, it also becomes nominally the the thinking of global communism and of the Trotskyist wing and of everyone except for, you know, new elements of ultra-lefts in the 60s. And our thinking in the United States, the U.S. left, is completely poisoned by those ultra-left elements right. of the new yeah. left movement. But that's they, why it's this hearing this to us is just like... Oh well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's mind blowing. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's nothing new, man. This is just what you call <laughs> Marxism. I mean, it translates to integrated socialism, but in German, it's integraler socialismus. Integrated socialism. I yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Integraler socialismus. Yeah. Um. So essentially, it is something new because mm-hmm. it is a reunification of the two divergent Mm -hmm. streams of marxism right because them having split is a historical reality 
and Bauer is calling for their reunification. That's yeah. what, that's why it's new. That's why it's something mm-hmm. different. It it is a return to an older way of thinking, but it is something that is novel because the the face of politics has changed so much since those were two unified streams of uh, Marxist thinking. Yeah, it begs it does beg a huge question, which is just how because yeah, like you know the, I. Lenin's, I agree. <laughs> Lenin's no. characterization of, of the crisis of social democracy during the First World War is essentially that that is the way that we've all always thought, right? Is that in there, there are times of relative social peace in which the class struggle is waged on a lower level, strikes for conditions, uh, campaigns for influence, and then there are periods when capitalist crisis creates opportunity. And theoretically, all of those class battles and all of that experience prepares the leadership and the masses for, you know, the capacity for decisive and unified action during those ruptural moments. But instead, what it did was it created a layer of professionals and officialdom in the labor movement that were basically uh, not just unwilling to acknowledge, uh, like not just incapable of acknowledging the, the, the realities of capitalist crisis in various forms, whether it's, you know, inter-imperial war or, you know, the crash of the stock market or whatever, but that they had such a vested interest in their uh, pre-existing positions of influence and comfort so that they had actually objective interests in getting back to a state of social peace rather than pushing into the, you know, through the looking glass, as it were. So... The how is a bigger question than just it's too bad Bauer didn't write down a how. It's that it does appear that like that there's a good argument to be made that the actual experience um, that the socialist world uh, that that socialism underwent during the first, you know, 20 years of the 20th century uh, seems to say that it's not possible or it seems to suggest that it's, it's much more difficult than we ever could have imagined anyways. Well, I think a big step in the how direction would have just been for a similar tack being taken by the communist parties of the time. Right. That's true. Because it's not just a question of what you actually believe, right? Right. um, Just allowing for history as it actually played out. Um, If you look at the, if the communist movement hadn't shifted so far to the right in its popular front in its conception of the popular front at the same time as the, you know, social democratic movement was shifting leftward enough to essentially adopt a left popular front strategy. It is actually very conceivable that it wouldn't matter that it wasn't possible before it might've been possible under those specific set of conditions. Um, And maybe if the left opposition internationally and the right opposition internationally, since they had such similar positions, were they of one formation uh, along with like the London Bureau, like the, the I guess that's the right opposition, right? Like the PUM in, in Spain, whatever. Yeah, yeah. If all the dissident wings of communism were also of the same mind, yeah, it wouldn't have mattered what had happened to pre-war social democracy. Like the experience of fascism was a new moment and it, it held within it the conditions for a reef, a... A recombining or reformatting of international socialism but instead everybody just shifts around on the board but never ends up in the same place anyways so the so that the experience the early experience with fascism is just one of utter confusion 
so much so that even today we still don't really understand uh what it is <laughs> <laughs> Fascism had an independent mass base in the petty bourgeoisie, but it needed bourgeois backing in order to take power. Fascism never took power without cutting a deal with the bourgeoisie. And then the it would cut a deal with the bourgeoisie to bludgeon the workers' movements and to stabilize crisis. And then it would cut its ties to its petty bourgeois base and jettison the political program and economic program that allowed them to gain that base in the first place. Now, what I think is interesting is that the petty bourgeoisie is a class with the inability to sustain positive economic policy because it's constantly vacillating between the working class and the bourgeoisie. And that having dismantled the working class, it increases the social weight of capital, giving the bourgeoisie dominance over it. The petty bourgeoisie needs the working class as an ally against the bourgeoisie and needs the bourgeoisie as an ally against the working class. It can never be independent of the two. It vacillates between the two of them. So fascism creates a situation in which the petty bourgeoisie eliminates its ally slash competitor in the working class, giving social weight to the bourgeoisie to completely dominate. Uh, the petty bourgeoisie is a declining class that is constantly being is constantly dwindling due to the concentration of productive forces in to monopoly capitalism. So that a truly classical fascism would be tough to implement these days because of the complete lack of a petty bourgeoisie base a petty bourgeois base yeah i think that's an interesting conclusion to draw right and we talk about the morphing nature of fascist ideology in a different episode that you guys should go listen to it's a episode on post-fascism which i don't know how that's aged i need to go back and listen to that again because like in studying fascism i think i might have changed a lot of my views on what is and isn't post-fascism and what is and isn't possible but anyway (laughs) that's the nature of this show is we're kind of thinking out loud at you guys all the time that's right thanks for listening i take no responsibility for anything that i have already said (laughs) only what i'm about to say (laughs) and only then so long as i'm in my mouth that i no longer take responsibility for it My thinking is so dialectical that I am constantly at war with everything I have previously done and said. <laughs> but right, a lot so of my old ideas do reassert themselves, just in a new and higher form, because history moves in a spiral. Right. Uh, that's, that's shit that old Chris said. Old Chris is dead. I'm... Yeah, that coward old Chris <laughs> from five minutes ago. <laughs> Okay, so (laughs) there are two explanations of fascist state power. One is class struggle and 
socio-political crisis. One yes. camp would put the the dissipation of the bourgeois order, the the chaos that the bourgeois order is thrown into by extreme crisis, such as the Great Depression, lies the basis for fascist state power. And the class, the rising class struggle um, allows for the a movement of the petty bourgeoisie to insert itself into the class struggle and become a useful ally for the stabilization of uh, capitalist class relations. And that the bourgeoisie, of course, would surrender power to the fascists in order to resolve the crisis and bludgeon the working class. Um, and this, this view sees fascism as a special form of capitalist dictatorship. Now, there's the other kind, the, the other explanation of the, fa- of the origins of fascist state power, and that would be the needs of the capitalist economy, where the direct intervention of the state is necessary for this degenerating stage of capitalism. The role of the state needed to be massively expanded in order to discipline, uh, discipline labor for the reorganization of capitalism in a way that labor would never allow. So in order to uh, reestablish the profitability of capitalism, labor needed to be disciplined. And in order for that to happen, there needed to be a dictatorship of some sort. Fascism steps in to fulfill that role. Unwittingly, depending on who you talk to, I think it's probably unwittingly. I think that the fascists probably really did have this petty bourgeois program and ideas of uh, cooperation between the classes and of a proletarian and petty bourgeois unity against the bourgeoisie. But they couldn't get into power any other way than to ally with the bourgeoisie. So they did and became the tools of capitalism for stabilization. Whoops. There was a fundamental contradiction between the potential capacity of the fascist state for the rational coordination of the economy and society in the general interests and the actual irrationality of its exercise subject to the assertion of particular interests, the force of economic stagnation and the autonomy of the class and national antagonism. Fascist policy thus had a typically zigzag quality and its appearance of supreme power was illusory. So one of the things that I have written here is that stabilization was only temporary and that a sort of hyper-Keynesian model of recovery was possible, but that it was a recovery that was unsustainable because there were infrastructure projects, but the main method of fascist recovery was through a uh, extremely accelerated rearming in both the uh, Italian and the German instance. So um, fascists had neither complete autonomy nor direct subordination to class interests. They existed in a contradictory liminal state. And fascism at first was not seen as capable of expanding the economy after stabilization. And then it did. So the quantitative view of capitalist decay shifted to a qualitative view. So Marxist thinkers began to think of 
economic recovery and economic expansion that was happening in the in the fascist states as a distorted development that was done at the expense of material and cultural needs. So through the depression of mass consumption and the mobilization for war, that is absolutely true. Um, even in the even in peacetime leading up to the war, Germans were on strict rationing, strict rationing, and all essential materials went to rearmament. There were several uh, programs that were meant to be like the Strength Through Joy program, where uh, gigantic seaside via, villas were being built for the uh, for, for the German working class, for the workers to be able to take vacations to, um, a program to create cars, affordable cars, at the expense of the state that was not profitable at all. I have one of those cars. <laughs> yes, you do. It's called Volkswagen. Like, you know... It's cars not, for the Volk, for the German Volk. Yeah, it's not that old, though. I mean, and then they're a program to put a radio in every household and the the Autobahn, of course, just programs like that, infrastructural programs that were all, of course, not the not the Autobahn, but all the other programs were given short shrift whenever the need, when it, they came up against the needs of rearmament because fascism was in constant need of conflict in order to sustain itself. And there are the two elements of it. Fascism needed the needed colonies to be able to sustain its development and to industrialize in the way that the capitalist economies had done in the case of Italy specifically. Well, and to restore profitability in the case of the more advanced economy of Germany. Right. So Germany had lost all of its imperial possessions after World War One, and Italy never had much of much in the way of imperial possessions outside of uh, a small toehold in Africa. So they wanted to realize the imperial ambitions that the, you know, that the United States and Great Britain and France had all already realized in order to be able to exploit those markets and those natural resources. So they embarked on a program of imperialism. Italy did it in Africa and no one really cared because it was in Africa and they, they did it at the expense of Ethiopia. Right, all of the it, all of the democratic imperialist and colonialist powers were already doing that. Yeah, and Germany did it at the expense of Poland, <laughs> Czechoslovakia, France, Norway, and uh, the Soviet Union. Um, and you know, of course, Hitler said, "What? We're just doing what you guys. <laughs> we're doing what you guys did. It's just the wrong continent, though, man. It's, it's doing it on the wrong it continent. Makes all the difference." If you look at the kind of things that people like uh, Churchill had to say about Mussolini and that Chamberlain had to say about Hitler, they might have been okay if they just never went to France mm-hmm. in terms of antagonizing the Western powers. Well, I mean, they would have had to skip Czechoslovakia, but if they had just committed to a holy war against Bolshevism and of German ethnic expansion in depopulated uh, you know, Western Ukraine and Western Russia, the probably would have been allies rather than opponents of the uh of the major western powers bauer's final article deals with all that stuff that i basically just said about imperial expansion and i won't go into it um but i just wanted to give credit to bauer so if you read this book those aren't my thoughts those are bauer's thoughts yeah turns out bauer is somebody that we should all be more familiar with yeah and i'm going to get more familiar with bauer outside of his writings on fascism as a result of this
Right. So, I yeah, I think the importance that Horkheimer and uh, the Frankfurt School really uh, – bring to an analysis of uh, fascism is they they delve into the the psyche uh, they delve into the the psychological aspect of uh, of it all like where does this come from on the psychological level uh, and what is it what does it look like and uh, what are its potentialities and uh, uh, where can it lead and where does it take root in the individual uh, psyche um, which uh, is uh, phenomenally helpful as a supplement to um the the rest of these theories that we uh, theories of fascism that we read that totally ignore the the psychological level and solely look at a sort of objective sociological phenomena uh i i think mm-hmm. horkheimer's uh, and really the all of the frankfurt school that i'm familiar with in uh adorno and horkheimer and and um uh when they talk about fascism they they talk about it in um the way that i think the the common turn was uh, like in the third period uh where absolutely everywhere they look in a capitalist society they see fascism now i i, I, I there's two two ways to take that i think one is to say that uh, i i i think it's th- their analysis is still valuable despite that for for two reasons or two either way that you look at it right one um you can take it as they sort of lay this out as a mere assertion and they're not in undertaking uh a broader sociological analysis of fascism and where it comes from uh, on an objective level they're sort of merely asserting this and then engaging in a a psychology of fascism and that's still incredibly useful uh, the other way to look at it is to say that they're not actually asserting this um, as uh, that's not actually the position that they're asserting. What, they're, I, what you could read them as saying, uh, asserting is that the kernel, the seed, the potentiality of fascism exists everywhere that that capitalism exists. And I think that that is true, that uh, the ideology uh, ideology, uh, capitalism creates a, a sort of a plethora of germs, of ideological germs, and fascism is one of those germs. And there are objective conditions uh, that give rise to one germ versus another sort of taking over, like we see the uh, coronavirus taking over right now. But that that's got to be our next yeah, president. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but the but the ideology of of fascism, the um, the psychology of it exists everywhere that capitalism continues to give rise to that as a potential future. And uh, that's where I think I'll insert this quote where he says, if you won't talk of capitalism, then you must remain silent about fascism also. Right.